Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at The Canteen, one of our regular segments where we feature the sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This past Sunday, I actually had the opportunity to lead us in our study of God's Word together. We took a look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, in Matthew chapters 20 and 21 and looked at it as a case study in how we need to get ready if we're going to join Jesus in going out and making disciples. So let's listen in. I hope the message is helpful to you. Welcome. Good to see everybody here this morning. My name is DJ. I'm the worship leader here at Christ Community. But this morning, uh, Pastor Blake had to head out the door. He is preaching to our friends at Clay Street this morning. Uh, And so I get to fill in and have the privilege of opening God's Word, leading us in our study of it today. Uh, So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I would invite you to take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29, and then we are going to go into chapter 21 as well this morning. And as you're finding your way there, I've got something I want to propose to you this morning. And that's this. Just about anything that's important enough to be worth doing requires getting ready. Just about anything that is important enough to be worth doing requires getting ready. Case in point, church started this morning at 10 a.m., Now, on the assumption that everybody has, on average, about a 10-minute drive to get here, I highly doubt that anyone rolled out of bed at 9.49, hopped in the car, and got here. Maybe you did, and if you did, you are an all-star and a better person than I am. But I'm going to guess you left yourself a little extra time in your morning. Reasons may vary, right? Maybe you needed to spend a little bit of time on your hair so that it didn't look like a giraffe licked your head when you walked in the door this morning. That's me. Maybe you had to leave time to swing by Starbucks or Dunkin' and get that caffeine injection right away, right? And we got coffee here, and we got good coffee here, but maybe that 30 seconds between walking in the door and getting to the coffee, you're worried something terrible might happen, and you had to charge up before you got here, so you had to build in some extra time. Maybe you just needed to shower, so you didn't smell like a middle school locker room when you walked in the door this morning. Whatever your reason, I'm going to guess that a vast majority of us, maybe even everybody in this room, started their their day by getting ready in some way, shape, or form. Good things take preparation. There is a reason that not every meal most of us eat is a microwave dinner. There's a reason that not every restaurant is a fast food joint. The good stuff takes time. And and if you are eating all those microwave dinners and nothing but fast food, and you think, ah, good stuff doesn't have to take time, let me introduce you sometime to my friend Brisket. Brisket is better than anything you're going to get out of the microwave, but, but it takes all day. The good things take preparation. Well, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus this coming week, you ready for that? You ready to celebrate next Sunday morning? As we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus... Blake is going to be kicking off a three-week series called Join, Go, Make that calls us to take a fresh look at our mission as a church and how each of us plays a part in that as we join Jesus in going out to make disciples. 
Well, don't tell Blake, but I'm turning his three-week series into a four-week series. And I'm kicking it off this week. And when he tells you next week that we're starting a new series on Easter, just smile, nod, play along, everything will be just fine. But we are going to spend today getting ready. If you're going to join Jesus, go outside and make disciples. You can't just roll out of bed and walk out the door. The good stuff takes preparation. We need to get ready. The good things take preparation. And going out to join Jesus to make disciples is a really, really good thing. So on the day that we've come to know as Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the account from Matthew's gospel that inspired that name. And we're going to see how this text, by God's Spirit's power, can prepare us for the path that lies ahead. So join me as we read Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, they being Jesus and his disciples, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, Open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they followed him. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray, and we're going to jump in and study it together. Father, you are good to us. You give us 10,000 reasons to bless your name. And as we gather this morning to hear from the word, God, we invite your spirit to be present with us. And we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. By the power of your word, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, now I know what some of you are thinking. DJ, you said this was going to be about Palm Sunday, and that first bit that you read there is not part of the Palm Sunday story. Well, these two events, I'm going to suggest to you, are more connected than you would think. See, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he didn't write with chapters and verses in mind, right? We, we put the chapters and the verses in there to help us navigate and find our way, but Matthew didn't write, all right, we're at the end of that story, we're going to chapter break, and now we're going to start chapter 21. He just wrote two events that roll into the next. And so I'm going to suggest to you that these two events, the two blind men who get their sight and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, are more connected than you would think. And it's Jesus' identity that is the hinge on which they turn. 
Jesus' identity is what centers these two events together. All right, so where are we at in Jesus' life? We're parachuting into the story here rather late in the game. So we need to figure out what's going on, what's the context in which this text takes place. Well, Jesus has been in ministry for about three years, and he's left Galilee. Galilee was the region of northern Israel where most of his ministry took place. Most of the stories you read of the miracles, of the sermons, of the teaching, that took place up in Galilee. And now Jesus is on his way traveling south to Jerusalem. And this journey south to Jerusalem is to observe the Passover. This is a a pilgrimage that good religious Jews made every year to celebrate Passover. But as Jesus is going south to Jerusalem, this is a journey that is going to end in Jerusalem a week from here with his arrest, crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. So this is the climax of the story, right? This is the end, the pinnacle of Matthew's portrayal of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so now that this journey south is nearing its final stages, our text today finds Jesus leaving Jericho. Jericho was a city about 15 miles from Jerusalem. And so this journey has headed south. This crowd has started following Jesus everywhere he goes, as as tended to happen in those days. And now they're making the final push, right? Jericho to Jerusalem, 15 miles, and then they're there. And they'll be celebrating Passover together and celebrating this Jesus who they're following. And so Jesus is being followed by a great crowd, and this great crowd is going to be the focus of the second story, right? It's going to be the focus of Matthew 21 and what happens there. But in this first episode that we see at the end of chapter 20, the focus comes to rest on two rather unlikely people. Two blind men are sitting by the road, we see in verse 29. Now, this wouldn't have been unusual, right? To be blind in this day was to be a beggar. If you were blind, you couldn't work, you couldn't provide for yourself. And so to be blind in that day, in that culture, meant you were left to begging on the side of the road. And so as you went into or out of most cities and towns at that time, it would not be unusual at all to see blind people there begging to the passers-by, to the people flowing into the city, to the people coming out of the city. And so the people would have been able to look right through them as if they're not there. Like Think about if you go into a major city center and you see homeless people You're kind of used to it if you've spent any time in a downtown area. And so to our shame, many times we look right through them. They might as well not even be there. That's what it would have been like to be one of these two blind men here at the gate of Jericho. Now, these men can't see Jesus, but they hear the commotion of the crowd. They hear something happening as Jesus begins to leave Jericho on this journey to Jerusalem. And they get word it's Jesus that's passing by. And they've probably heard about the miracles. They've probably heard about his compassion on the downtrodden, his compassion on the hurting, on the suffering. And so what do they do? They call out to him and they address him, Lord, have mercy on us. But notice what they call him, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now this should grab our attention, especially For those of us here at Christ Community who have just finished a three-month study of the life of David, right? We we know the significance of who David is and, and what he did and what God did in his life and the promises that God made to him. If you're new, let me let me give you a quick recap. David was a shepherd boy that God plucked out of the fields, quite literally, and made king over his people, Israel. David was a shepherd, he was a poet, he was a musician, he was a warrior. 
He's most famous for his takedown of the giant Goliath, which you've probably heard about once or twice or 500 times. He loved and trusted God deeply. He wasn't perfect. In fact, he was guilty of adultery and setting up a murder in his uh, affair with Bathsheba and the shame that that brought onto his household. But he was a man whose repentance was as fierce as his failures. And he threw himself continually on the mercy of God to the point that God described him in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. And so David, as his reign neared its end, he wanted to leave a legacy, as we talked about last week, as Blake showed us as we looked in 1 Chronicles. He wanted to leave behind a legacy. He wanted to build a house for the Lord, a temple, a place where God's people could come and worship. And God told David, no. He told him no. And instead, God made a promise to David about a very different house. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. As David pleaded with God to let him build the house, God says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now in one sense, that was fulfilled in David's son Solomon. Solomon was David's descendant. Solomon sat on his throne. His kingdom reached heights of glory that even surpassed that of his father. And Solomon built the temple. He built the magnificent place where God's people would come and worship, the place that was his presence on the earth with them. But even in those days, God's people instantly knew there was more to this promise. Because it wasn't the only promise in the scriptures that seemed to indicate that, that something or more accurately, someone big was coming. The glory of Solomon's kingdom didn't last. It fell from within, divided in half, an upper kingdom and a, and a southern kingdom that were at war and conflict with each other. As they turned from the Lord, as they followed the gods of the nations around them, God brought judgment upon them with the Assyrians and the Babylonians who came, who overthrew them, who took them captive to faraway lands. The line of David and his kings was broken. And even still, even in exile, even in Babylon, there was a hope that people clung to these promises of, of the descendant of David who would come, who would be a king to rule forever, who would sit on the throne. And this notion of a Messiah began to take shape among God's people. An anointed king, a chosen one of God who would come and fulfill the promises that were made to David. And so the people in Jesus' day, the people that he ministered to, that he spoke to, that he did miracles in front of, they lived with this expectation of a son of David who was coming, who would save them, who would save his people. Even though they largely expected that, expected that that saving would be freedom from their Roman oppressors. But they had this idea, the son of David is going to come. He's going to save us. And so far in Matthew's gospel, a few people have picked up on the fact that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is this promised one. Not many have seen this. And interestingly enough, it hasn't been the religious scholars. It hasn't been the priests. It hasn't been the influential. It's been the nobodies who have picked up on this. 
It's been the nobodies who have noticed the reality of who Jesus was. And in our story today, it's the blind that see it clearly. Verse 29, they call out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And as they call out, the crowd sees them as either a distraction or an interruption. These two guys are an obstacle to be cleared. The parade is headed for Jerusalem, and we do not have time for these two blind guys who want to get Jesus' attention. Now, the irony is striking when you stop and think about it, because this crowd is following who? Jesus. This is a crowd that is supposed to be following Jesus in going out to make disciples, going to Jerusalem to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And they see these two guys in need on the side of the road, and they're saying, hey, calm down. Like, we got stuff to do here. Alistair Begg, a pastor that I like to listen to, famously paraphrased it this way. He's like, you've got the two blind guys. Son of David, have mercy on us. And you have the disciples in the crowd saying, shut up. We're trying to do ministry here. Take a seat. And in the silliness of that juxtaposition, in that ridiculousness, we are confronted with the first way that we need to get ready this morning. To get ready to join Jesus, you have to see people the way that Jesus sees them. You have to see people the way that Jesus sees them, full of grace and compassion. You see, the crowd's rebuke doesn't shut these guys up. Maybe they've heard of Jesus' compassion because they get persistent. They start crying out even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And they get his attention. And notice the difference in the way he reacts to the way that the crowd reacts. Jesus stops, asks, listens, and acts. He stops. He allows them to take priority over all the important things that he no doubt had to do. All right, this is Jesus, busy guy, places to go, people to see. And he stops to encounter, to engage these two nobodies that everybody else was either looking straight through or trying to shove to the sidelines. He asks them what they would like him to do for them. Jesus, in verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? He listens to their request for sight and he acts with compassion and power. Jesus performs a miraculous act that confirms his identity as the son of David, right? Verse 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they followed him. These blind men, their trust was not misplaced. I want you to notice, they asked Jesus to do what only God could do. Give them sight, open their eyes. They asked Jesus to do what only God can do, and Jesus delivered. Jesus did it. And what do they do in response? They follow him. They join Jesus in going out. They join in this crowd, the same crowd that had no patience for them five minutes ago. They're now in the midst of it. And when this crowd marches into Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna in the highest as Jesus rides in just a few moments later, maybe these two guys were in the front of the line leading the cheers, leading the cries. And yet if Jesus had seen them the way the crowd sees them, they'd still be back by the roadside, suffering and alone. Friends, CCC, we need to see people. 
We need to see the people of Shelbyville the way that Jesus sees people. What's that look like? For starters, we need to consider our temperament. We need to look at this text and say, why exactly was the crowd so bothered by these guys? It doesn't tell us. Right? We, don't, we don't have any inside information, but we can imagine a lot of reasons that perhaps they were impatient. And I love the way that, uh, that Charles Spurgeon, who's a pastor from the, 19, or from the 1800s, I love the way that he put it. I love the questions he asked here. He says, speaking of the crowd, did they upbraid them for their ill manners or for noise or for harshness of tone or for selfishly wanting to monopolize Jesus? It is always easy to find a stick when you wish to beat a dog. It is always easy to find a stick when you wish to beat a dog. In our dealings with people, maybe friends, maybe family, maybe strangers, are we showing the kind of compassion that Jesus shows? Or are we always impatient, in the mood to beat a dog and just looking for a stick? Because if you're looking, you'll find it. You say, DJ, you don't know how bad this coworker irritates the snot out of me. No, I don't. I can imagine, because we've all got coworkers that irritate the snot out of us, most of us anyway. And yet, it doesn't exempt us from showing the kind of compassion that Jesus shows. You're looking for a reason to be annoyed. You're looking for a reason to be impatient. You're looking for a reason to be selfish. You'll find it. And in the quietness of your own heart, if you're anything like me, you'll begin to justify it to yourself. I don't, I don't have time that person, I, I've tried already with them. I'm just really fed up right now. I need a me day. And we move on ahead. Are we showing the kind of compassion that Jesus shows? If we're going to see people like Jesus, if we're going to follow him in his compassion, we would do well to remember the four things that he did. Stop, ask, listen, act. I think in those things is a blueprint for us, right? As we do ministry today as his followers. First on, stop. We are busy people. We're busy people. And that busyness can often be an enemy of joining Jesus. Are you willing to stop when opportunity presents itself to show grace and compassion for someone? You're going to have opportunities this week. Promise you. Guarantee it. And they're going to come at really inconvenient times. They're going to come when you've got something to do. Will you stop? Will you pause your workday to talk to that coworker that is isolated and alone? Will you take time to pour into your spouse or into your kids instead of just bouncing with everybody from one event to the next? Will you take time on a Sunday before or after the service to have a conversation with that unfamiliar face? Will you take the time to talk to that stranger on the street instead of just passing on by? Before we can get to any of the other things, you've got to stop. Jesus had a place to be. He was going to Jerusalem. He was making the final march, getting ready to triumphantly ride into Jerusalem. And yet he stops for two blind men that everybody else was trying to quiet and shove into the corner. Stop. Ask. Ask. We Americans are often like the great theologian Toby Keith, who once famously said, I want to talk about me. Okay? I can talk about you, 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 you usually, but I want to talk about me. We have stories to tell, and we are always in search of an audience. 
We get in conversations. And before the other person can even get through their piece of the story, we're already thinking of the next line that we're going to say. I say we. I can just substitute I. And has a little more edge to it, doesn't it? So you'd be amazed how disarming and refreshing it can be to simply ask some questions of someone in your everyday conversation. How are you? Really? Right? We say, how are you all the time? But if the person doesn't say good, it would throw off our whole, what? I don't know how to respond to that. Really ask someone, how are you? And give them permission to tell you the truth. What do you like? What makes you happy? What troubles you? What scares you? How can I pray for you? You just start asking people questions and let them talk. Because we're all wired to want to tell that story, right? Stop. Ask. And when you ask, you actually have to listen. Stop. Ask. Listen. Don't think about what you're going to say next. Listen to them. Take in what they're saying. And as you're listening, ask God to help you connect and empathize with them. Right? When, we're, when we're talking to people, when we're engaging people in our day-to-day life, one of the, the, the pushbacks that we often give is, I'm afraid to talk to this person about Jesus because I don't know what to say. Here's the freedom. Just, just let them talk. You be a listener, and you would be amazed how many possibilities that that is going to open up for you to have a conversation with somebody. And as you're listening, ask God, God, help me. Help me to have the words to say. Help me to be able to connect the dots with this person. Help me to be able to give them something. And he will. He will be faithful to help you, to strengthen you, to prepare you in that moment to speak his word. Stop, ask, listen, and finally, act. Act. Now, we see the story here. What does Jesus do? How does he act? Well, he touches their eyes and immediately the blind people can see. We think, "Uh, I don't know that I got that, right? And, And no, you probably won't heal their blindness. However, I'm going to throw out the caveat that God's done stranger things with stranger people than me and you. So, But whether or not you heal their blindness, you will be able to help in some way. Maybe you buy them lunch. Maybe you invite them to church. Maybe you hear something in their story that triggers something in your mind and you connect them with one of our ministry partners in the community who can uniquely help them or help their family. And maybe you talk about Jesus and the hope and the forgiveness that he came to bring them. Maybe you do all of them, right? Maybe this isn't a one-time conversation, but maybe just stopping and asking and listening to that coworker in the office or that friend or that person in school or that person on the street, maybe it opens a door for another conversation and another conversation and another conversation. Who knows where God goes with it? Stop, ask, listen, and as you have opportunity, act. We're all in this together, right? I am preaching to myself big time right now. Don't see this as the guy up on the stage who's got it all together saying, all right, people, get in line. No, this is hard because we're busy people and we've got places to be and we've got stuff to do and we can always find a stick to bat away the things that we know we should be about because I've got reasons, I've got things. I gotta drop the excuses. I'm not busier than Jesus. 
I'm not more important than Jesus. But to get ready to join him, you have to see people the way he sees people. Now, as we hit chapter 21, the procession that has left Jericho arrives at the gates of Jerusalem. You got Jesus. You got this crowd of largely Galilean pilgrims who have come down with him. And probably two blind guys from Jericho. And they're coming to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And now this little glimpse of Jesus' identity that we got from the two blind guys on the side of the road is going to be proclaimed and shown for everybody to see more widely and more publicly than it ever has in his ministry up to this point. When they draw near to Jerusalem, Jesus gives a really strange request to a couple of his disciples. 21, chapter 1. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Jesus tells two of the disciples to go and get a donkey and its young colt and bring them there. Why does he do this? Well, thankfully, Matthew tells us. Point blank. Verse 4. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Jesus does this in order to fulfill a messianic prophecy. Matthew quotes here in verse 5 from Isaiah 62.11 and mainly from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, which gave the unusual promise of the coming king, the Messiah, the promised one, riding a young donkey. Zechariah 9.9, we've got it up on the screen here, and it it goes on from there all the way through verse 17 with this amazing, big, triumphant, celebratory language. Rejoice, your king is coming to you. He's righteous. Yeah. He's victorious. Yeah. He's humble. Wait, what? And riding on a donkey? That's that's not how the movie goes when, when I see it, but okay, we'll roll with this. Why why a donkey? right? Kings generally don't ride donkeys. Proud, conquering, victorious kings leading parades down the city center don't ride donkeys. Donkeys are not regal. Some of you have donkeys. Some of you live near donkeys. You hear, like, they're not, you see a lion, you see a racehorse at the Kentucky Derby, you're like, wow, that is a majestic creature. You see a donkey, you're like, that's the thing that's alive. Donkeys are not what kings sit on for a picture of power and authority and might. Kings ride war horses at the head of columns of soldiers and chariots as they ride into town. The image of a king, a triumphant, victorious king riding on a donkey was about like saying the president is going to come to town and he's going to be on a parade right straight through the city and he comes down the main drag on an old Vespa. It just... Doesn't, doesn't fit the narrative, doesn't fit what we're used to seeing. Pastor and author Douglas Sean O'Donnell said, in contrast with the arrogance and violence usually associated with earthly kings, this king, we are told, will be poor and afflicted. He'll be a sovereign lord and yet a suffering servant. So the disciples go, they do as Jesus instructs them, and the scene is set for Jesus to enter the city on this humble mount. Verses 6 and 7, they went, they did, they brought the donkey, they laid their clothes on him, he sat on them, and the parade begins. 
Now, we clearly see Jesus' humility here, right? We clearly see the juke in the story from where we think it's going to go with the proud war horse to where it actually goes with the donkey and what that says about Jesus' identity and the kind of king that he is. But don't miss the other important fact that this ride is going to proclaim. Jesus is intentionally setting out to to fulfill messianic prophecy. He goes and gets the donkey to fulfill what was said in the scriptures. By doing what he does here, Jesus is proclaiming to the crowd and to all of Jerusalem that he is indeed the promised Savior and King. By riding the donkey in in this way, he is telling everybody, hey, I'm the guy. Zechariah 9.9, that's me. He's coming in. And usually when people have, have pieced it together and they've seen, oh my goodness, this is who Jesus is. He's the son of David. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one that God said would come. Jesus has told them up to this point, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. He's kept it quiet as he's continued to go about his ministry. It ain't quiet anymore. Because in verse 8, a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches off of trees and spreading them on the road, right? They are doing what you do when a victorious king rides into town. They would have been used to parades like this when a a conquering king or a general rides home in victory. And they, they have this stuff laid out in the street. And they shout praise and adoration at this one who is coming. That's what they're doing here. They're greeting Jesus as their Lord and King. And in that, we find our second truth. To get ready to join Jesus, we have to see Jesus for who he really is. To join Jesus, we have to see Jesus for who he really is. As he passes by on the donkey, notice what they shout. Verse 9, the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, Hosanna isn't really a word that we use outside of that worship song, right? Hosanna, Hosanna. But be honest, even when you've sung that worship song, you probably didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what the word actually means, right? Maybe. What is it? What are they saying? What does Hosanna mean? Well, it means, please save or save now. It's a cry for help. It's an expression loaded with great emotion. Nobody said, Hosanna. Like, Hosanna was saying, Hosanna, save us. Please, God, help us. So I want you to take note of what they're expressing here in verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In those few words there, they give a cry for Jesus to save them. They've identified Jesus as the son of David, the promised Messiah, and they've, pre- they've said blessing on Jesus as the one who comes in God's name. Fifteen miles ago, only the blind guy saw Jesus for who he truly is. Now it's been broadcast to the city of Jerusalem. It's clear for all to see. The crowds proclaim it. And in contrast to those earlier episodes, Jesus doesn't try to quiet them. In fact, he set things up to achieve exactly this. Go get the donkey. Bring him here. This is to, be, to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill prophecy. This is what he's trying to say is this is who I am. I am the promised Messiah, the coming king, the savior that God has been promising you for generations. And word begins to spread through the city. 
And the whole place gets stirred up. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Keep in mind, the crowd celebrating here is largely pilgrims that were traveling into the city with Jesus. They've been following him from Galilee, from Jericho, and now they're riding in with him. So if you lived in Jerusalem, you're sitting here thinking, what's going on at the gate? What's all the commotion about? And so they start asking around. Who's causing all the fuss today? And the crowds answer correctly, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. But they answer incompletely. Because this is a good time to note that even now, even seeing this parade on full display, even praising God for what he's doing right here in their midst right now, they don't fully grasp yet who Jesus is and what he came to do. A truth we're going to learn one week later when his arrest and crucifixion scatters the crowd, scatters even his closest disciples, drives even Peter, even his right-hand man to say, I don't know that guy, I don't know what you're talking about. It's often pointed out on Palm Sunday by well-meaning preachers that the same crowd that welcomes Jesus here is calling for his crucifixion just a few days later. That's not necessarily the case, though, right? Both events happened in the same city, and perhaps there were some who were, who were that fickle, but there's nothing in the text that makes that point or makes that connection for us, right? This is a largely Galilean crowd coming with Jesus who's praising him. It's a largely Jerusalem crowd that's crying, crucify him. So we can't say it's the same people just flipped on their head. But what we can say is that even here, as Jesus is proclaimed as Savior as clearly as he ever has been, the people didn't fully grasp what his saving mission would entail. But on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, you and I, by God's grace, can see it clearly. We see what he was doing, what he came to do. See, the people there understood that Jesus was coming in fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Check, we get that. They didn't understand he was also coming in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. They came to the city to celebrate the Passover not realizing that Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb, killed to protect people from God's divine judgment. God himself making a way, an escape from the wrath that our sin justly deserves. If you're really going to join Jesus, as we're going to get into next week, as we, if you're really going to join Jesus in going out and making disciples, if you're really going to join him in the mission that he's called us to as Christ Community Church, you have to see him for who he really is. Who is he? He's the one Lord and King of the universe. Not just a good teacher with some nice ideas. He's the one Lord and King of the universe. Not just a good teacher with some nice ideas. See, if you like Jesus, the good teacher, with some nice ideas, you'll listen to what he says until you don't like it anymore, and then you'll think, ah, we can get rid of that part. 
You won't join him in going out and following the mission to the ends of the earth wherever he takes it. If Jesus is a good teacher with some nice ideas, you don't go to Poland to speak to refugees. You have to see Jesus as the Lord and King of the universe. One who comes with the power of God behind him. One who can take somebody like you, like me, who's weak, who's frail, who thinks, I can't do that. And he can transform us by his spirit, not my power. That's the God who sends you, who prepares you to go. He's the one Lord and King of the universe, not just a good teacher with some nice ideas. He's the God who loves you and came to suffer. Not a distant deity who is far removed from your real life problems. Right? The, the crowd, they got that he was God. They got that he was the promised king. But they were just ready for the parade and the celebration to start. Isaiah 53 didn't enter into their imagination. Why would he have to suffer? He suffers because he loves you. He suffers because all of we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have run from God, not to him. We've hidden things in our hearts that nobody knows about that we would be ashamed if they ever came out into the light of day. We think things. We treat people in certain ways. We don't live like God. We don't live like Jesus. We live like the person who's looking to beat a dog and always searching for a stick. Jesus said, I'll enter into that mess. I'll come. I'll suffer. I'll die. I'll pay the penalty for your sin, for your shame, for your failure to bring you back to God. See, walking with God is hard sometimes. Sometimes it involves suffering. Sometimes it involves going to hard places and doing hard things. But we don't follow a God who just sat back on his nice throne and said, you guys figure it out. Jesus loves you and he came to suffer on your behalf. He entered into your mess, your sin, your shame. He's the God who loves you and came to suffer, not a distant deity who is far removed from your real life problems. And finally, he's the Savior who died for your sin, guilt, and shame and rose from the dead for your victory. Not a self-help guru who just wants to help you be a better you. Because being a better me is only going to go so far. That's a ladder that's only got so many rungs on it and it's not nearly enough. But he came to transform my eternity to give me a destiny that goes beyond death, to pay for my sin, my guilt, my shame, to rise from the dead with the promise, I can follow him in his resurrection. We live among a world that is just striving with everything we have to keep death at bay. Right? If, if I don't talk about it, if I don't look at it, if I don't think about it, then it's not really there. We shy away from those images on the news that make us feel uncomfortable. We shy away from what's going on on the other side of the globe where we realize we are all too mortal. We pursue every, every possible cure for every possible disease, which is fantastic. But oftentimes we, we can go without realizing at the end of the day, mortality rates 100% what am I going to do? I'm going to trust in the one who rose from the dead. I'm going to trust in the one who conquered death, and I'm going to join him in going out and pointing Shelbyville and Kentucky and the world to that hope. Not hope in me, not hope in us as a church, not hope in our ideas and our missions, but hope in Jesus Christ. That is a mission, that is an aim that will last forever. 
So do you see people like Jesus sees them? The band's going to come back up. We're going to take some time to reflect on these questions. Do you see people like Jesus sees them? Do you have his compassion? Are you joining him to go out to make disciples? If you're going to do that, do you see the people the same way that he sees them? Or are you, you, you shoving them to the corner? Hey, quiet. We're trying to do ministry here. Get out of the way. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Do you see him as who he really is? Not just a good teacher, a guy with some good ideas, the king of the universe who is worthy of your allegiance, your affection, everything you could ever ask or imagine. Have you joined him? Have you done what Dalton just did this morning? Say, I'm with Jesus and I'm telling the world this is where we're going. Have you joined him in baptism? Have you joined him in saying, I want to follow him wherever we go, whatever it looks like, I'm with Jesus. Will you join him this morning as we take communion in proclaiming his death and the peace and forgiveness it's brought you? And do so week after week until one day you join him in his resurrection. Will you join Jesus in going out to make disciples? however you would answer those questions, this is the time to respond. Band's going to play. Kenny will be in the back. I'll be in the back. If you'd like to, to, to have a conversation about some of this stuff, say, hey, I, I want to know what it looks like to join Jesus. Maybe we have that conversation right now. Maybe we, we have coffee one day this week and we talk more about it. We're also going to put the, uh, the QR code for our digital connect card up on the screen. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't want to come to the back, but maybe you say, I, I, I need to do something. I need to get ready. I need to get ready to join Jesus. I need to see people like Jesus sees them. I need to, to see Jesus for who he really is. I would encourage you to scan that, that code with your phone. That'll bring up our digital connect card. And on that card where it says, uh, you know, get connected, just put in there, get ready. If we see that come through with get ready on there, one of us on staff will reach out to you this week and ask how we can talk to you, how we can pray for you, how we can help you get ready to join Jesus in going out to make disciples. But will you go? Will you get ready today to join him tomorrow and forevermore in taking his message of hope to the world? Blake's going to remind us next week when he starts the series. Jesus has already gone out ahead of us. He'll never call you to go somewhere he hasn't already been. He'll never call you to go somewhere he hasn't already been. That's a good God. That's a good Savior. So let's join Jesus. It's time to get ready. Pray with me. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that we have hope and a future because of who you are and what you have done for us through your son's life and death and resurrection. May we join him. May we get ready to go out and point people to him. May we have compassion on our neighbors, on our classmates, on our coworkers, on strangers. May we see them the way you've seen us. And may we extend that same hope and compassion to them. And may we see Jesus clearly. And Father, may we say, whatever may come, I am with Jesus. I am going to follow him. I'll join him in his death. And one day, I will join him in his resurrection. God, pour out your spirit on us. Give us grace as we wrestle with these things, as we put to death sin that's in our hearts, as we ask for strength and help and hope for a future. 
God, we know you're a good God and you will give it to us. May we rejoice and praise you for this and in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, We hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in an experienced Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.